This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. I picked this up from the mirror. Billie Eilish, the singer, has urged her fans to stop discussing her sexuality. Okay, what is this about? Uh, She gave uh, an interview to Variety, and said, I've never really felt like I could relate to girls very well. I love them so much. I love them as people. I'm attracted to them as people. I'm attracted to them for real. So over the weekend, she was at a a Variety event, and the interviewer said, we got to talk about your cover story because you mentioned that you felt like for a long time women didn't like you. And Billie Eilish says... I'm still scared of them, but I think they're pretty. Uh, Ask if she meant to come out in the story. Billy said with a laugh, girl, no, I didn't. But I kind of thought, wasn't it obvious? Like it's kind of been, I just didn't realize people didn't know. But now she goes on social media and says Variety has outed her on the red carpet. She writes, thanks Variety for my award and also outing me on a red carpet at 11 a.m., Instead of talking to me about anything else that matters, I like boys and girls. Leave me alone about it. Please, literally, who cares? All right. She has made her views known. Uh, I talked yesterday about both Susan Sarandon, took her two weeks and a lot of pressure, and Julian Margulies apologizing for various offensive and inflammatory things they said related to Jews, blacks, you name it. And I have a column on that today, examining why celebrities, even those who are, you know, pretty media savvy and politically savvy, um, keep making these blunders and then have to walk it back and or apologize. In this case, pretty full-throated apologies, although Susan Sarandon took two weeks to apologize. Is that how long it took her um, to realize that she had screwed up or was it just the pressure that she might have damaged her career. All right, I want to get right to the story number one because I think it's an important one. Story number one. The Atlantic has devoted its entire issue to warning of the dangers of a second Trump term. And I'm starting with this, but the Atlantic is not alone. New York Times, Washington Post, repeated on MSNBC. How do I put this? You know, the media have been anti-Trump pretty much since 2015. I knew him in New York since the late 80s, so I took his candidacy more seriously than others did. And certainly during the four years of the Trump presidency, Steve Bannon used to call the press the opposition party. And certainly... Indubitably, after January 6th, you know, the press basically brought the media indictment. We didn't know there would be four criminal indictments later on. Uh, 
that Trump had incited a riot, had incited, had urged people to come to Washington, and then they went down to the Capitol, and a whole lot of police officers were injured. But what I'm seeing now, you know, it's not just being anti-Trump. It's not just doing, digging on Donald Trump. Any presidential candidate should be scrutinized. It is crusading against Donald Trump. There's no longer any pretense. There's no fig leaf. There's very little attempt at balance for most of the media. And then television then picks this stuff up, acts as an echo chamber. Uh, Various members of The Atlantic started with an essay by editor-in-chief Jeffrey Goldberg have been making the TV rounds, talking about what they've written and then giving the uh, anchors and commentators the chance to talk about it as well. So let me start with what Jeffrey Goldberg wrote. Talks about Trump's past, and he says, Trump has now gone lower and lower and lower. If there is a bottom, no sure thing, he's getting closer. Tom Nichols uh, of The Atlantic said Trump has finally earned the epithet fascist. Trump's rhetoric has numbed us, says Goldberg, in its hyperbole and frequency. Trump and Trumpism pose an existential threat to America and to the ideas that animate it. The country survived the first Trump term, though not without sustaining serious damage. A second term, if there is one, will be much worse. Let me just digress here and say, look, I mean, some of this Donald Trump brings on himself. He goes to rallies, he posts on True Social, and he says things that should uh, be scrutinized, whether it's the use of the word vermin, whether it is... um, going after saying that the network like MSNBC, which is largely anti-Trump, but Trump says should be the government should do something about this illegal political activity. And some of it is not directly from Trump and his postings, but it's what he has told other people. So I don't have any problem reporting reporting factually on it. I do think there should be at least some inclusion of another side, but that's where what is fading, I think. So let's see here. Just to mix it up, I will uh, quote from a New York Times article. As he runs for president again, facing four criminal prosecutions, Trump may seem more angry, desperate desperate and dangerous to American style democracy than in his first term. He has glorified political violence and spoken admiringly of autocrats for decades. Give a couple examples. What will be different in a second Trump administration is not so much his character as his surroundings. Forces that somewhat contained his autocratic tendencies in the first term would be weaker. Okay, now here are various, a couple of different Atlantic writers to give you the sense of the essays in this issue. David Frum. Trump operates so far outside the normal bonds of human behavior, never mind normal political behavior, that it is difficult to accept what he may actually do, even when he declares his intentions openly. What's more, we've experienced one uh, Trump presidency already. 
By 2024, Election Day, Trump will be in the thick of multiple criminal trials. Not impossible that he may already have been convicted in at least one of them. If he wins the election, Trump will commit the first crime of his second term at noon on Inauguration Day. His oath to defend the Constitution will be a perjury. A second Trump term would plunge the country into a constitutional crisis more terrible than anything seen since the Civil War. Even in the 60s, even in the Great Depression, the country had a functional government with the president as its head. But government cannot function with an indicted or convicted criminal as its head. The president would be an outlaw. For his own survival, he would have to destroy the rule of law. George Packer in The Atlantic, writing about the media, Trump claims to despise the journalists who cover him, calling them the enemy of the American people, suing them and threatening unspecified reprisals for their transgressions. But his narcissism craves their constant attention. And as president, he gave reporters far more access than his successor has, taking their late-night phone calls, yeah, compared to Biden, you think, uh, framing their cover stories in gold. I've seen that in Trump Tower, on the wall. Media organizations, including this one, meaning including his own magazine, have warned for years that Trump is a danger to the democracy that makes journalism possible, and that a vigorous free press or vigorous press is essential to a free society. At the same time, the media became dependent on his vile words and scandalous deeds for their financial health, squeezing droplets of news from his every tweet, even if the public had nothing to learn. It's impossible not to feel that Trump has gotten the better of the codependent clench. His endless stream of grievances and invective eroded his supporters' trust in the news media to the point where 58% of Republicans now say they have none. If half the country believes what most of the mainstream media report, and the other half thinks it's mostly lies, that isn't a partial win for journalists. Whose purpose isn't to strengthen the opposition, but to give the public information it needs to exercise democratic power. Well, when you devote a whole issue to uh, how awful and terrible and dictatorial he is, no wonder half the country has lost faith in the press. Trump corrupts everyone who gets near him, spouses, children, followers, accomplices, flunkies. He corrupts the press by obsessing it, by flooding it with so much S that news becomes indistinguishable from fluff excuse me, and lies. All right, uh, quickly, here's Sophie Gilbert in The Atlantic. Strange as it may be, this may be to say of the only American president found legally liable for sexual abuse, the only leader of the free world accused of dangling a TV gig in front of a porn performer seemingly as an enticement for sex, the only commander-in-chief to publicly denigrate the sexual attractiveness of both Heidi Klum, no longer a 10, and Angelina Jolie, not a great beauty, I don't believe Donald Trump hates women. Trump's glee in smacking down women has filtered into every aspect of our culture. Well, the culture had plenty of misogyny before. All right, Washington Post, I I mentioned this. Robert Kagan, you open up the uh, Sunday A section. It was either three or four full pages. Uh, Let's stop the wishful thinking and face the stark reality. There is a clear path to dictatorship 
in the United States, and it is getting shorter every day. Uh, Kagan, I guess not really a Trump fan. Well, this will end once Trump wins Super Tuesday. Trump is about to become far more powerful than he already is. The hour of casting about for alternatives is closing. The next phase is about people falling into line. Biden doesn't enjoy the usual advantages of incumbency. Trump is effectively an incumbent as well. Few Republicans regard the Trump presidency as having been either abnormal or unsuccessful in his first term. The respected adults around him not only blocked some of his most dangerous impulses, but also kept them hidden from the public. Why should Republicans have a, voters have a problem with Trump if those who served him don't? Well, some of those who served him do, as we look at uh, John Kelly, for example, and a number of others who have turned against him, or Trump has turned against, Bill Barr. I could go on. Trump, by his very election, will have defied the institution of justice. A court system that could not control Trump as a private individual is not going to control him better when he is president of the United States and appointing his own attorney general and all the other top officials at DOJ. Would he even obey a directive of the Supreme Court? Or would he ask instead how many armored divisions the chief justice has? Little play on the uh, famous quote about, I don't know if it was Stalin or... Whoever, I should have looked this up, but how many divisions during World War II does the Pope have? So here's a story in the Washington Post. This is a news story and a legitimate one. Trump is circulating a new set of falsehoods that the federal government staged or incited violence at the Capitol on January 6th to discredit Trump and his supporters. Okay, how do you know this? In court filings last week. Former president revealed he has been pressing the Justice Department for information on far-right claims, often elevated in his speeches, on his social media feeds, and by his conservative allies in Congress. Trump is suggesting that the government is withholding information on people known as fence-cutter bulwark and scaffold commander, nicknames given by conspiracy theorists to people they claim are government agents who instigated the January 6th riot. This is pretty far out. Trump asked for all documents regarding Ray Epps, supporter of the former president who has been falsely accused of being an undercover operative, and John Nichols, a liberal journalist in Wisconsin whom right-wing media has suggested encouraged violence at the Capitol on behalf of the deep state. He also asked for any uh, intelligence the government has on Antifa, um, informants, cooperators, undercover agents involved in the assistance planning, or encouragement of the events of that day. These are all references common on right-wing social media. Hmm, okay. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's move on. Number two, Dana Bash 
is getting a lot of praise for her interview with Pramila Jayapal, pressing her repeatedly on why progressive women, people always say we must stand up for women, aren't denouncing the use of rape as a tool of war by Hamas. As more and more and more pathetic and disgusting evidence comes out about that. She says, I think we have to be balanced about bringing in the outrages against Palestinians. 15,000 Palestinians have been killed. And it's horrible, says Danabesh, but you don't see Israeli soldiers raping Palestinian women. And she kept trying to change the subject, and Bash continued, with respect, I was just asking you about the women, and you turned it back to Israel. I'm asking you about Hamas. We have to be balanced. Also an interview, and this is a sad subject, uh, Jake Tapper interviewing yesterday Bibi Netanyahu senior advisor Mark Regev, who often makes the rounds on TV. And Tapper was pressing him about civilian casualties in Gaza, Gaza, excuse me. And he said this, it's very hard to believe that where he talks about, where Regev talks about Israel's doing everything it can to avoid civilian casualties. Now that in the next phase of the war, Israel, and we've seen pictures of the tanks and armored personnel carriers um, invading the south of Gaza, the very areas, or some of them at least, where perhaps a million Palestinians fled from their homes in the north at the assistance of Israel. Uh, back to Jake Tapper. It's especially hard to believe that, especially on a day when one of our producers lost nine members of his family, nine members of his family who are not members of Hamas, not members of Palestinian Islamic Jihad, not members of any group, just nine people trying to live their lives. And Regev said, first of all, I extend my sorrow to him and my sympathies, but if I saw your report correctly, and please correct me if I say something wrong, that happened in northern Gaza, in Gaza City, where uh, a month ago we already asked all the civilians to leave, and most of them did. There was like 1,200,000 people there, now only a couple of tens of thousands left. And one has to ask, yes, they had ample opportunity to leave. I don't know what happened. I don't have the specifics. I know there's deadly combat going on now between the IDF and the Hamas terrorists. We don't want to see anyone caught up in the crossfire. But why didn't they heed the advice and leave the area? And Jake, to his credit, said, you can't blame them. You can't blame them. There's fighting in the South now. I've been asking this since October 7th. Where are these people supposed to go? The CNN producer, Ibrahim uh, Dahman, his family was killed in Gaza after Israeli forces bombed the home of Dahman's aunt. Now, what possible excuse is there for that? They had all gathered there, and that's where all of them were killed. I mean, it, it's not some hospital or children's school where Hamas is embedded. No. The aunt of a guy who happens to be a CNN producer. Can you imagine the pain and the agony? And now, of course, um, the fighting shifts to the south. And 
I think inevitably there will be more civilian casualties. I do think that Hamas is willing to have its own people killed so it can blame Israel. When Hamas, of course, embeds its top leaders in the southern portion of Gaza. Number three, let's get to the other war. Well, it's not just Ukraine. Politico has this piece. Senate negotiators are scrambling to revive bipartisan border talks after the lead Democrat involved warned that the talks had reached a major impasse, especially or potentially endangering a cornerstone of President Biden's foreign policy agenda. After Chris Murphy said yesterday there's no path currently forward on a border deal, other senators tried to keep the discussions from deteriorating. Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema moved to bat down claims that the Republicans are insisting on harsh detention policies. And Republicans said they expected a new exchange of offers. Not dead, a person involved in the negotiation said about the status. Is that wishful thinking or not? Uh, we don't know. The whole point of the Biden package was there was supposed to be a quick way of getting military aid to Israel, of getting military aid to Ukraine. And part of that was also allocating more funding to secure the border, which right now is beyond insecure. It's practically become an open border. So Chris Murphy is saying in this uh, political piece that to sign off on Ukraine aid, the Republicans are insisting on policies that would, quote, essentially close the border and eliminate asylum for people with meritorious claims. Those are non-starters for Democrats. So the whole package is $106 billion, funding for Israel, funding for Ukraine, funding for Taiwan, and funding for the border. Democrats have made some concessions to Republicans on areas like asylum, but GOP senators said they haven't gone far enough. All right, are you familiar with the concept of compromise? Is that now such a dirty word on Capitol Hill that we're just going to have all this squabbling? Uh, Mitch McConnell says the Republicans are still at the table. You know, it depends on, on who you believe. But, you know, the White House has made clear that money for Ukraine, most of which is spent, 90% of which is spent in the United States building the weapons that Ukraine needs, um, will run out at, at the end of this month. And these are they, we just going to have the same old partisan gamesmanship where everybody says they're right and nothing gets done? Is there really not a compromise that these two parties can reach, given that the loss of Ukraine would be absolutely catastrophic for the West, encourage Putin, who launched this brutal invasion of a sovereign neighbor, and who knows what NATO country might be next. And it seems like, even though there are an increasing number of anti-Israel voices among the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, that there's certainly enough votes to pass military aid for Israel, but not as a standalone bill, because Biden understands that it's got to be a package. Not a hopeful sign for the president. Senator Bernie Sanders broke with Biden. Says he, uh, he said last night, he opposes the unconditional military aid to Israel. 
Bernie, of course, a presidential candidate who ran against Biden in 2020, famously Jewish. And yet here he is saying on the Senate floor, what the Netanyahu government is doing is immoral. It is in violation of international law and the United States should not be complicit in those actions. He's not opposing all funding for Israel, but he wants all kinds of restrictions put on it. And he probably has a lot of people in the left wing who agree with him. So the latest update is uh, the invasion of the South is expected to be the most intense phase of a war that is already the deadliest in the Arab-Israeli conflict since Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982, which prompted the largest displacement of Palestinians since the wars that surrounded the creation of Israel back in 1948. And meanwhile, everywhere Biden goes, there are now protesters yelling things like, or carrying signs that say things like, Biden, Biden, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. Again, these are, many of them are young Democratic liberals who are anti-Israel and pro-Gaza, which means they're pro-Hamas. Number four, New York Times has a piece essentially catching up with uh, a Rich Lowry column that I shared with you a few days ago. Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, has traveled the world in his quest to stop Donald Trump's march to the Republican nomination. He has assailed the former president as being unfit to lead, anti-democratic, and an aspiring dictator. But now, six months into Christie's uh, presidential primary big, Republicans who share his goal of defeating Trump are suggesting an entirely different approach, quitting the pressure on Chris Christie is growing. He barely made this uh, fourth debate, which will be on News Nation tomorrow night. Not likely to get a huge audience. Republican donors, strategists, pundits are publicly pressuring Christie to follow the lead of Tim Scott and Mike Pence and formally end his campaign. They'd like him to throw his support behind Nikki Haley, who has risen in the polls in early voting states. This reflects anxiety that has consumed anti-Trump Republicans as the race moves into the final weeks before the Iowa caucuses. The thing is, oh, it's a repeat of 2016 when Christie remained in the race until he finished sixth in the New Hampshire primary. He endorsed Trump 17 days later. I don't think he's going to drop out uh, until New Hampshire, but there's certainly a lot of pressure. And Rich Lowry says he's an admirer of Chris Christie, but thinks he should quit. However, it, it's incumbent on me to point out that even, let me repeat that, even if Christie endorsed Nikki Haley and all of his votes went to her, she'd still be trailing by double digits the lead that Donald Trump has. Don't go anywhere. More Buzzmeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number five. I did uh, the Fox News rundown podcast uh you can also see that today if you're not sick of hearing to me hearing my voice and we talked a lot about artificial intelligence and how it's increasingly difficult to tell truth from lies and the springboard for this was the story i've been telling you about at sports illustrated how it had a contractor that made up fake names for authors so austin murphy who worked at si for from 1984 to 2017, has this piece saying that 
you know, it recaps what Sports Illustrated did. He quotes a, another former staffer who uh, anonymously says that the management of Sports Illustrated, called the Arena Group, doesn't value journalism. What it does value is the power of the brand as something that can attach to shower curtains, brain pills, a sports book in Ann Arbor, a restaurant in Canada. If it wasn't so sad, it would be funny, said S.L. Price, another former SI writer whose award-winning long-form stories appeared in the magazine for decades because it's so shoddily done. He was referring to uh, vapid sentences about volleyballs, but also, in a more general sense, to the serial humiliations endured by our alma mater since 2019 when the Meredith Corporation sold Sports Illustrated to Authentic Brands Group, which also manages elements of Juicy Quatuor, Nordica, and elements of the Elvis Presley estate. What a weird combination. All these companies have followed the strategy, leveraging the SI, SI brand and wringing maximum cash from it. So he quotes a bunch of headlines going back to 2019. Mass layoffs, chaos at Sports Illustrated, sparks journalist rebellion, that's NPR. Crueler and dumber by the day on Sports Illustrated and a dark media landscape. That's from The Ringer. Anyway, he says, he closes by saying, Sports Illustrated was Valhalla, not just for sports writers, but for writers, period, throughout the decades. The magazine's editors persuaded such authors as William Faulkner, Jack Kerouac, and Hunter Thompson to contribute stories. And, you know, Frank DeFord was legendary as a writer and reporter for years and years. Well, you won't find people like that at the magazine anymore. Hey, let me get in this extra segment, even though we've done our five. I've actually been trying to get to this for a couple of days. Um, Washington Post, MSNBC faced a blizzard of backlash after announcing that popular liberal host Mehdi Hassan would lose his Sunday night show as part of a broader restructuring of the weekend lineup. Yeah, there's a broader restructuring of the weekend lineup, but he's the only guy who lost his show. He'll still appear occasionally as a contributor on other people's shows. He's one of the few Muslim hosts in cable news. And prominent liberals have questioned whether he's being penalized for his criticism of the Israeli government's actions in Gaza and strong support for the Palestinian people? And the answer, of course, is yes. But Hassan has, you know, almost been a cheerleader for Hamas. I don't think he would put it that way. He's supposed to be a very good interviewer. But basically, this doesn't, this isn't what the MSNBC audience wants to hear. They don't want to hear a Muslim host bashing Israel, and they don't want to hear a Muslim host carrying the banner of Hamas. But the Washington Post piece says, look, his segments often went viral on social media, where uh, users celebrated his takedowns of such conservatives as John Bolton and, who I talked about earlier, Israeli government advisor Mark Regev. Hassan pressed Regev on the children killed in Gaza by Israeli strikes. 
When Reger said that Hassan had seen photos of dead children because they're the pictures Hamas wants you to see, the host said, also because they're dead, Mark. They're people your government has killed. So that gives you a sense of the tone of his show. Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna saying it's bad optics for MSNBC to cancel uh, Mehdi Hassan's show right at a time when he is vocal for human rights in Gaza with the war ongoing. Also, he had pretty lousy ratings, uh, particularly in the 25 to 54 uh, demo. He averaged just about a half million on the show. And so you can be one or the other. You can be spouting popular opinions that your audience doesn't want to hear, and your management will overlook that if you're bringing in the big Nielsen numbers. Or if you're not doing particularly well in the ratings, then maybe being a a champion of the terrorist group that brutally committed atrocities in a surprise attack on Israel back on October 7th, maybe you tone that down. I mean, look, Mehdi Hassan didn't tone it down. That's what he believes. And now MSNBC has canceled him. Uh, Well, this brings me to the point where I'm not going to cancel myself, but I will cancel the rest of the podcast. Actually, we're at the end. This is just me uh, trying to inject a little uh, light note into the proceedings. Thank you so much for joining. We have millions of downloads, and I am very grateful for that. And as a result, see you tomorrow with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.